Welcome to another episode of Stoke Meter. We are very pleased to have Jill Moses with us today. Jill is the CEO of the Inspired Community Project. Now, when I saw what the Inspired Community Project was, I thought I really got to reach out to Jill and see if she'll she'll volunteer to be on the show. And thankfully you did. So Jill, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Oh, it's a blast. And I'll tell you what, the the way that I came across you is there was another guest on our our, um, show named Eileen, uh, Eileen Koo. And oh my goodness, when, when she highlighted that, I couldn't help but get excited. And I knew that, that we needed to reach out. So, and, and the things that you're doing, the Inspired Community Project is, um, it provides equitable, and ac- ac- equitable access to special education services and resources. I didn't come up with that. That actually came from your website. <laughs> <laughs> but when we were initially speaking, you said this is a pretty young organization, right? I mean, if you can call a year and three days young, yeah, I think we're uh, pretty new in the scene. And you folks are exploding. So I wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind explaining how this all came about. It it was an interesting story, no doubt about that. Well, the funniest part is it actually starts with just the person you recognized in the top of this conversation. So Eileen is actually the CEO of Opportunity Network, where my husband works. And so I've known Eileen probably close to eight years now. And so she and I have had many conversations over my career as a special education teacher. And as I've gone through different career changes and different ranks and roles within the education field. And so right before I started the Inspired Community Project, she was actually one of the people I sat down with. And I was like, hey, I have this like really crazy idea. I want to use all of my experience and my service and what I know as best practices. Like, what do you think about me going off on my own? And she was like, absolutely. She goes, you were built for this. You were made for this. You have the career, the fortitude, the tenacity. You have to do it. So the fact that she shared, you know, she shares all of our stuff. And the fact that that's how you came across it is really near and dear to my heart. That is cool. Eileen is, Eileen is something else. When she's passionate about something, she, she goes for it. But the other thing, though, too, in, in the conversation before this interview, it was obvious that you were built the same way. <laughs> we are very similar. I think that's why we get along. We both recognize it in each other. And it's nice to have that camaraderie in another person. Uh, well, I've got to read. Uh, I've got to read this particular particular piece that came on from from your website. Actually, it came from a media thing that I came about, and that is Jillian and her team work tirelessly to serve the community, improve the lives of their students. Amazing, orga- amazing organization making a big impact. And that was just one of many. Uh, what do you folks do over there? <laughs> People write this goodness about you. What a wonderful question. So we, so the Inspired Community Project, we are an early intervention nonprofit and workforce development program. So what that means is not only are we providing services for children who are diagnosed with some sort of developmental disability, but we are a training center where basically we want to take people from the community 
train them, get them certified and put them back in the community. So we have a hyper local self-sustaining model where we take in community partnerships. We work with people who are already doing the hard work. We work with different workforce development programs and basically want to go back to the community service model of helping your community from within the community. So we serve as children from all over the Bronx. And so what we're doing is being able to create the professionals that can then go back into the community and continue to serve the community. Man. Okay. This is, that's cool. Simply because it's typically, I'm looking, I remember when I worked in New York and it was so funny because you'd always bring these consultants in and they would be the ones as soon as they left, well, then what happened to the organization? <laughs> it kind of reverted back to the same stuff. And Absolutely. I saw this, right? Over and over and over again. And sadly, and, the Bronx has the brunt of that because, you know, the Bronx has a bad reputation for a slew of reasons we could get into it another time. But, you know, so in education, what happens is like the Bronx has the highest referral rate for early intervention services, meaning the most number of families in the state are being told their children need assistance. But the Bronx has the lowest participation because there are no training programs, there are no professionals. And even a lot of the colleges that send interns, it's just that it's temporary. They'll come until their tenure or their internship is over. And then they go back to their own boroughs or they go back to their own states and they have no intention of going back. So what we're creating is something that we're taking people from the Bronx to train them to work in the Bronx. And so they're local and they want to help their own community. So I have to ask, you need to dumb it down for me a little bit. I have a tiny brain. <laughs> so what, what, what does that mean though? Like if, if let, let, give us an example of someone like what, what are you training them for? Like, what is the, what's the gap there that you guys are filling? Sure. So we work uh, early intervention is a service provided by New York State through the Department of Health. And so basically, if you have a little baby or any child before the age of three that gets diagnosed with a developmental disability, they are then entitled to services um, paid for by Medicaid or insurance if you have it. But you have to go and find those resources, right? You have to go find a therapist. You have to find a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, a center program, something. You have to find somebody to help you once you have those authorizations. But in the Bronx, there are not any training programs or really large um, groups of people that can provide those services. And so there's only maybe one or two other center-based programs. So you're talking about maybe 120 seats for over 2000 children who need services. Mm -hmm. And so because of this deficit, other programs are starting to try and incentivize people to come from Manhattan or come from, you know, Westchester, but they don't stay. And so when they come into the Bronx, they stay temporarily or they find the commute too long or the pay not worth it or whatever the circumstances. And then the children and families are left without services. So instead of outsourcing from other colleges and other boroughs to get things done, we have partnered with like Mercy College Bronx. And so we have started looking internally in the Bronx because it has everything you need in the Bronx. You just need to be dedicated. And that has to be part of your model is to work with the people already doing the hard work in the Bronx. Yeah. So it's kind of a grow your own model is what it sounds like. Yeah, it's a beautiful blueprint model. So what we're trying to do is I loved the idea of the Bronx being the first and kind of being the, the flagship of this model where the Bronx can then wear that as a point of pride, where this idea was founded and trialed in the Bronx, it thrives, and now we put it in other communities. So our goal is to open the Bronx location, run a full blueprint school year where we can see how it, how it impacts the community at large. And then we wanna take it to the next three locations per lowest early intervention participation is Central Harlem, Jamaica, Queens, and then East New York. 
Wow. Now, this is a New York-based function, but the things that you're doing, they are transferable to pretty much any big city, right? Do you have any plans in place? And I know it's early on, so a year and three days. I mean, good (laughs) night, man. (laughs) But have you been in... In communications with any other big city like that that or, or making it so that it's uh, repeatable? So I think we have a lot of work to do in New York. I would love to say that we would make a really fantastic model. And you know what? When we have an 80 or 90 percent participation in early intervention in New York State and we are just hand over fist turning out services and hours and happy families and, you know, we have really figured it out in New York then we'll work on other locations, but I'm born and bred New York. So we got to, we got to work at home first. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Uh, when I was uh, first, when I was, I r- arrived in New York in 98 and uh, stayed there for a decade and went to, to teacher's college over there, Columbia. And the first book that I ever picked up over there was Savage Inequalities. Uh, good book. Right. And when I read that, I was going, uh, <laughs> wow, wow. Mm-hmm. And it talked about a little bit of funding and it talked about all these other little things. And when he put it into light, it was, it was kind of like, wow, that is a pretty savage inequality. I mean, it was a rightly named book. I'm just wondering, how have you dealt with those different things like funding and such? Because it is really hard together i mean when you're when you like the ps6 over there i know they're very well funded uh um district over there but how aside from donations and stuff as such how do you address those different types of inequalities so savage inequalities was actually a really important book to me when i was going to college so i went to nyu for teaching and i've always known Mm -hmm. i wanted to be a teacher and i didn't you know special education didn't fall onto my radar until i was doing student teaching and what i appreciated about nyu is they make you do general education placements but also special education placements you have to do both Mm -hmm. and so in my special education placement i remember walking into everything described in that book it was just yeah Wait a second. I had just come from this really prestigious uh, Brooklyn. uh, I don't even remember the name of the school, but it was (laughs) well-funded. It's probably better off. I don't name it anyway, but a well-funded, you know, parents were engaged the, just the activism in the community. And then I walked into this, you know, district 75 special education, totally removed from the community, removed from funding, removed from supports. And I was like, this, this is bananas. This is absolutely bananas. But I'm also the kind of person that was like, oh, I, this is where I need to be like this, <laughs> done. This is where okay, district 75, this is where I go to teach. And I ended up teaching almost 10 years in district 75. Oh. But I took those lessons from, you know, understanding what it meant to engage with a family where both parents are working more than two jobs and mm-hmm. where you can't ask them for school supplies. You can't send a list at the beginning of the year, asking them to spend 30, 40, $50 on school supplies. So what I spent almost a decade of my career teaching doing was how do I find resources that I can also help the family? Because working as a teacher is not about just how you impact the child, but how do you engage the family and support them through that? So I was constantly finding free resources, uh, donated school supplies, donors' shoes, you know, those kind of yeah. things that allow the families to not have to take on that burden. 
And so, you know, going back to funding for this, the Inspire Community Project is a self-sustaining model. And I did that for two very important reasons. I don't think it's responsible or ethical to fundraise people's salaries. I think people's livelihood should not be at the whim of other philanthropy. And so for me, making sure that the teachers and educators and therapists had a guaranteed no matter what year over year income was paramount for me. And also that meant that we would be able to provide services with no lapse, no worrying about funding. Um, so our model, our programmatic model where the services we provide, we get paid for Medicaid, we get reimbursements. And so we are at a scale and it was a very specific strategic scale. It's large, but it's large on purpose because it has to carry all of the staff and all of the other administrative persons that are essential to run a program of this size. So the model was built so that our programmatic revenue carries us, but we have strategic partnerships that actually supplement our income so that not only are we making enough to cover overhead, but we're actually gonna be profitable within our first year. Nice, nice, nice. I'm just wondering too, what is it, what's the response been like from the community? Um, I know when someone shows a vested interest in an individual, and in this case, families, they re- it resonates with them, and there, there's usually some type of response. What have you, what have you been seeing there with the work that you've been doing this past year? I mean, sadly, the response has been equal from the Bronx Borough President all the way down to the families I've worked with previously. They're like, "This is so needed." How does this not already exist? Why is this not already in happening? And why why isn't it happening faster? And I'm like, well, I'm raising money as fast as I can. And we're only a year old. So, but every single person, you know, like I said, from I went back to families that I had worked with previously doing direct service as a baby therapist back in the day. And I went to them, I said, what was hard for you? What were the hardships and barriers you faced so that I can figure out how to fix that for the future families? And so the response has just been how can I help? What do you need and how can I help? And really it has been astounding to see if they couldn't help us financially, they can help us with resources and connections. Let's have a conversation with this person. Or I know somebody at this office or talk to this person who's a consultant for this kind of application. Um, every single person has just been so incredibly helpful. And you know, everybody hears about what we're doing and they're like, oh, so you're not just helping kids. You're also doing workforce development. Oh, you're not just doing workforce development. It's family advocacy coaching. So it's supporting you know, families in the neighborhood. And so it really, everybody who has any sort of vestige in community uplift can mm-hmm. find a piece of what we're doing and really latch onto it. I love that community uplift. That, 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 that's so cool. That's so cool. And what is, and Gary, I'm sorry if I translate any questions, you have, just, just ask over me. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about hearing about this in New York, but what are some of the assumptions that have been burst? And I, I, I use that word uh, very generally, I guess, is what you say, because there are so many assumptions. When I was up there, Upper East Side had assumptions about <laughs> about once you go go past 96th Street over there or on the West Side 125th, uh, and there are these assumptions. But once I remember, church wise, I went and I helped a, a youth group over there in Harlem, and it was amazing how many of these these I'm going to call them dorky assumptions I had, and when you connected with 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 these unbelievable young men it was amazing what the response was. And I'm wondering if there were any assumptions that you had going in and as you worked with those individuals, how to impact you. And then as an add on to that question, as you've brought people 
um, together, even though they're in the Bronx already, what are some of the assumptions that they burst and then would have been the results? What a multifaceted question. That Absolutely. Is. I, love it. I love it. And I'm going to get to all, all the points of it. So for me, the assumptions going into the Bronx. So I have worked in all boroughs except Staten Island in a direct service kind of way. So I have been in most neighborhoods, most tax bracket homes. I have seen, I have seen everything left, right, and center. And so for me going into the Bronx, the assumptions I was taking was from my personal experience, the homes I had been in, the families I had dealt with. And so you know, I went into the Bronx after starting the Inspired Community Project with the idea that, okay, I'm going to have to build out this workforce development. I'm going to have to build out these internship lines. I'm going to have to build out these connections with community resources. You know, and then when I started speaking to people, there's um, the Bronx has so many resources already built in that it's just like, oh, you need to connect someone there. Great. Here's somebody at the the Bronx nonprofit organization. Oh, great. Here's a connector from Mercy College. Great. I can connect you to a bunch of like workforce development programs. Oh, you need interns. Great. Got you. And it was just like, oh, these systems are already in place. But, you know, another facet of your question was what has been most interesting is they are all looking for a catalyst of direct service. So for example, there's a hospital we're speaking with creating a place that they can send their resident doctors to perform evaluations. So right now there's over a six month wait in the Bronx to receive an evaluation. And when you're talking about a little person who only has three years, 36 months to receive early intervention services, and they don't typically get even diagnosed until maybe 16, 18 months at best. I mean, six months waiting for an evaluation is absolutely absurd. And so we're partnering with this hospital to bring residents in to provide these evaluations on a weekly basis, and it could triple the number of evaluations provided, but they just never had a place to do them or someone to staff it and organize it and carry it out. And I was like, hi, me, I would love to do that for you. And they were like, this is phenomenal. And that was it. That was the entirety of the conversation. And just like that, we had now tripled the number of available available evaluations in the Bronx. So the resources are there. People in the Bronx are doing amazing things. And it's just about synergizing and creating the opportunity to carry them out. Wow. Gary, you I, you know, I'm going to go back to you just because you brought up healthcare. I mean, <laughs> listen, and you live in, 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 so Gary's in Arizona and he lives in, in I would say you have your, your, your average American, but then also, um, you work in an area similar to Bronx, although less less populated. <laughs> yeah, more rural. How, yeah. How does this resonate with you, Gary? No, no, I, I think it's fantastic because that is that is something that I've become more and more sensitive to over time. On on my side of the fence, as far as healthcare goes, is is letting people know what resources, first of all, are available because many times you, they don't even know. And then even once it's there, it's how do you get them from point A to point B to access those resources? And it sounds simple, but, you know, like if you're a young parent, like you said, and you're working two and three jobs, and at the same time, you're trying to juggle just being a parent, you know, being able to have someone and somehow to give you, you know, someone to give you direction, that, it, it, that's huge. I can't even tell you what a big deal that is from, from my perspective. Um, so... Yeah, that that is super exciting. Thank you. And so, you know, in the Bronx, we have a whole nother layer to that. So yes, being a young parent or even, you know, a a mid-30s parent, it doesn't matter. In the Bronx, primarily, 
English is not the best home language. So you're talking about access and availability. Just if English is your home language, you're already having difficulty. But now you add the layer of complication of even if English is your conversational language at home or you're able to converse in English, that doesn't mean it's your academic language. And these forms and informations and evaluations are all written in an academic way. So if you can't read academic English, this is totally out of your depth. And so you are really flying blind into even these things that are recommended to you. So well, our- so, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just saying <laughs> along that, I, I again, that's another thing that I am so <laughs> becoming aware of. So. We had a some a marketing material that was being handed to patients for for different services, you know, kind of follow up, you know, healthcare and that type of thing. And here, here's someone that's in the in the industry, and I was reading through this, and I was like, I don't even understand what this is saying. Like, we're giving this we're giving this to people, you know, that and, and we have where I live in Southern Arizona. There's also a, a high degree of language barrier um, that we experience as well, and I'm like. How can we expect these people to understand this when I don't understand what this is saying? We, you know, it's there's so much work to do even in that arena is making this stuff accessible just from an understanding perspective. Yeah. And so I have spent, you know, like I said, about a little bit over 15 years in special education in the city. So I was constantly having team meetings, parent meetings, parent coaching, parent teacher conferences. So Making items and information accessible to our parents has been just part of what I do. So one of the you know pillars of the Inspire Community Project was really that I wanted everything to be accessible. And now I also have two kids. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. So, you know, once I had kids of my own, I had a whole different lens on even what that meant. So things that I was presenting think, oh, well, this is great. I'll hold this training and you will do that. It is a luxury to go to a training at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday in oh, the yeah. middle of work week. And yeah. so, you know, the Inspire Community Project, what we're doing is we're hosting all of our things and we're doing it um, in triplicate. So everything is hosted live for those who can come and then you get a good Q&A. Then we're recording them and then we're translating them and hosting them on our website. Wow. So families have access to the information at a time that is reasonable and comfortable for them. But then all of our documents and we're trying to translate all our forms. We're trying to get everything accessible as much as possible while creating an opportunity where we'll have translators available. Again, New York City has all these resources. It's about bringing them together and making them forefront when you're talking to families. Man. Basically uh, meeting people where they're at. I think that yeah. is so important. You know, I think that's so underappreciated on, on so many levels, but especially when it comes down to, you know, the two probably biggest factors in a person's overall well-being and their life is education and healthcare. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that that we can, you know, that people can do to to make that more accessible, it's, it's going to be a win. You know, and, and I I think I'm also sensitive to where you guys are coming from because it always seems like the further you you step back in a problem, the harder it is to to get your foot in the door and to make an impact. So like. Like in my arena, emergency medicine is a no-brainer. If someone's dying, you try and save them. But if you try and go all the way back to preventative care, it's like pulling teeth. You know what I mean? And I imagine, I'm just guessing, it's healthcare similar to that? Very much so. I mean, not healthcare, I'm sorry, ed education. Yeah, I knew you were going. <laughs> uh, so it is. And it's it's difficult because, you know, the systemic inequalities start before birth. I think Black women have a 
exponentially higher death rate and mortality. And, you know, how are you going to, you have to go all the way back before the baby's born. If you really wanted to like take a step back and say, we're going to fix the inequalities, you have to start before birth. Um, For us, we have to figure out what, what for us is paramount is where can we step in? Where are we going to be most effective to have the greatest impact? And and interestingly enough, it's not just about going back, but for us, we're creating roadmaps for our families. So a lot of the times they get these evaluations, they're handed a piece of paper and they're like, okay, go call some agencies, figure it out. Good luck. And then the parent's like, oh, I don't know what to do. Then the child graduates from early intervention at three. They're sent to preschool services. Again, here's a piece of paper, make some phone calls, good luck. Then preschool services end and they're sent to school age services, which cover from like five or six all the way to 21. Mm-hmm. There is no instruction. It's literally another piece of paper. Good luck. Then at 21, you don't even get a piece of paper. Nobody wow. acknowledges that it happens and you fall off this clip of services. So for us, you know, it's a delicate balance between we don't want to scare parents as they just had a newly diagnosed baby. And that is that is a whole situation that they have to deal with internally as a family, as parents, as people. Um, but we want to provide them with at least a, a kind of umbrella view roadmap of like, okay, look, in 18 months, this is going to happen. You're going to evaluate your services. There's going to be drop off of services. They're not. So you get all your services front loaded. You get everything all at once when they're little. And then every time you make these big transitions, they decrease services significantly. Mm. And no one explains that to parents. So they think, oh, this, my son gets all of these services all the time. Everything's going to be great. The kid Mm. turns three and they're like, oh, what do you mean? I get a third of this. And then they go into school and, oh, I get a third of that third. And so we created these kind of roadmaps where it's like, look, we're going to talk you through in a very basic, non-scary way, but like, here are the things you need to start thinking about. Start looking at schools while your kid is three. Start looking at your neighborhood Mm -hmm. programs while your kid is three, because taking it in small digestible bites is going to be easier than like the panic of it's August. My kid has no spot for September. What am I going to do? That's not the time to evaluate programs because you're looking through panic and not through your best fit lens. And so for our families, it's not just about looking back and do preventative, but like, how can we support you once you leave us? And you're kind of like out of our grasp, but we can still kind of arm you with information. And that's why we call it the family advocacy program, because we want to create advocates. We want to give them the tools they need to go off and feel confident advocating for what their kids deserve. Man, I, what I appreciate about you, Jill, is the fact that you meet, Gary brought this up, you meet the people where they are, but it seems like you take it a step further. You've taken all your experiences and almost everything that you have seen and all your learning in the past and made it to your point in digestible pieces, but not only in one language, you're doing it across the board. I wish I knew you when I was in New York. <laughs> well, we know, we know each other now, and now we go way yeah, back. Absolutely, because I could have used a lot of this for my own kids. Because you don't know what you don't know. And to your point, I, I, I can I can only imagine what it's like to be a person that's working two jobs to make ends meet for their family, and they don't have the time to digest all that information. And I can't, I can only also imagine what it's like when they realize that that resource is available. This is, this is fantastic. I could see why Eileen would, would highlight you in, in, in such a way. Uh, and um, if you wouldn't mind going and talking about an, a family that you've seen impacted, I know this is one of those kumbaya moments, but 
inevitably you've seen success because you're making an impact, you're making a difference and wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a story like that. Absolutely. I mean, the number of families I've worked with over the last 15 years is mind boggling. And it's terrifying because I just found out some of my first early intervention babies are now going to college and I refuse <laughs> that timeline. I, I, I reject that timeline. It cannot happen. They are still five and a half and they cannot be going to college. But um, one of the families that really always sticks out to me is a family that actually had two children diagnosed with autism and they had two very different experiences. Um, I was not a person on their team when their first child was diagnosed or began to receive services. And it was something they found incredibly overwhelming. It was very traumatic for the family. They had a lot of difficulties finding service, figuring out. I mean, they had actually moved boroughs to find services. They had to relocate. Um, and when I kind of entered into the family's team, their second child was just newly diagnosed, newly put into early intervention and started to receive, receive services. And I remember sitting down with the mom and just explaining to her, like I said, that roadmap of like, look, let's take a breath. Here's what's going to happen. Here are the possibilities. Here's what we should be looking out for. Here's what we can plan for. And I remember, you know, she was getting ready to look at schools for the second child after having this really traumatic experience, finding a placement for her, her first child. And she just sat back in the chair and she started to cry. And she was like, no one has ever just explained this to me. I never even knew what these terms meant. No one ever told me what these classrooms mean, what these numbers on this document means. No one's ever taken the time to just explain it to me. And I just, that's was one of the things that always stuck with me that like, I think in the education field, there is so much so fast that has to happen and forget, we're not going to talk about under-resourced, underpaid, under, under-serviced, but we forget these parents have no knowledge just because they're given a child and a document that says they need help doesn't mean they have any understanding of how to help them, what that means and what these services are. And so that's a, a, a family that'll always stick with me because it always goes back to, did you explain that to them? Do they really know what that means? Do they know what their options are? And that was the other thing. She's like, oh, I didn't know I had a choice yeah. because a lot of the times they go to these meetings and the well-intended person from the district or whomever will be like, okay, well, you have da-da-da-da-da-da-da, here are your services. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, uh, okay. But the difference being in the Bronx, statistically, Bronx families get allocated almost half the hours that families in Manhattan get because families in Manhattan get either parent coaches, parent advocates, or lawyers that go to these meetings with them. Yeah. And they go, well, legally, I know I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z services, but I want to ask for more. And because the district wow. doesn't want to be sued. They don't want a problem. They okay, no problem. So, wow. you know, working with families one-on-one -on -one and sitting with them as their advocate, when I was a direct service provider and I was a supervisor and I was a team leader, I was hearing it from the parent side and they would come back from these meetings and say, I don't even know what happened. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what services we got. I don't even know what they were talking about. And Again, that those are the English speaking parents. Forget the parents who go in there and English isn't their first language or it's not yeah. that it's only their conversational language. So, you know, those were the things that stuck with me to my core so that when I was building out this program, it wasn't like I said, it's not just about the kids. It's not just about training the staff, but the holistic entity is engaging the families and creating advocates. And that's really the only way to create long-term systemic change is now you have informed parents and there is nobody more powerful than an informed parent who knows their rights, who <laughs> how to advocate 
you want to talk about change, that's how change happens. You have some angry, knowledgeable parents <laughs> who know where to go, who to talk to, whose phone to blow up. And that's how change is made. And that's what I wanted to bring to the Bronx is I want to bring that ability to advocate for change because I can't advocate on behalf of everyone. I've tried. It doesn't yeah. work. You need more people on the ground. You need more families advocating for themselves so that long term families coming through this in the future don't run into the same problems. Well, it sounds like you it sounds like you plugged in at the right spot. I yes. mean, if you guys are only a year old and you're already seeing this kind of success, I think that's super exciting. And like you said, I was actually going to mention that is I, I can almost guarantee as you get these parents on board and get them understanding, they're going to be probably your best advocates moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm also I was a union delegate for the teachers union. Oh, watch many, out! Like, watch out now! I'm going to unionize the parents, and then everybody's in trouble. Yeah, but creating advocates is is huge because then they feel a they have skin in the game, and on top of that, it's their community. So you're also instilling that community pride. Uh, it's it's really neat to see this from from organizational. My my training was organizational psychology, and that is what you're doing. You're, you're, you're making it. So you're unifying it. Um, and as silly as it might, the same might, might uh, sound love equals time. And you have put that time and effort in there on behalf of everyone that you're, you're serving over there and is felt. And it's because of that, that you have these advocates because they believe in the things you're seeing because you're leading by example. And it's a wonderful thing there, Jill. I, I, I cannot wait to see what you folks do moving <laughs> forward. And I think we ought to have one of your families on here one time. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm sure they'd love to. Yeah. Well, how, how can we help you? How about that? Um, so while we are new, we are a year and change old. Uh, basically, our timeline from last summer in July, I texted a good friend of mine and was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to start my own thing. And she wrote back, I've waited my whole life for this. So this has been from last summer inception to incorporation, 501c3, early intervention licenses. We had a fiscal sponsor, a fundraiser. We found a space. We started contract negotiations. We have sourced lawyers and all sorts of pro bono work. Um, and here we are almost a full year later to the day from our first fundraiser. Um, we have raised enough for our security deposit and we are about $300,000 away from opening our doors. And we're trying to open our doors for November 1st to hold a ribbon cutting on Giving Tuesday because that was our first fundraiser. And it would just, it would mean so much to me to be able to like have that full circle yeah. moment of from inception to, to doors open. So we're currently fundraising for our operating costs of the first couple of months, because once we're open and operational, like I said, we are self-sustaining. So our programmatic revenue will cover us, but we have to cover those first three months in yeah. order to hire our teachers, buy our supplies, get our materials. Um, and so that's where we are. Right now we're fundraising for that money to get our doors open. Well, What's the best way or yeah. where, do, where do people go to, to donate? So our <laughs> website is theinspiredcommunityproject.org. Um, we're also on LinkedIn and we have a lot of information about our fundraising goals there. We have a GoFundMe page. Uh, we're trying any and any any and every avenue um, to get involved with anybody who's passionate about education equity. Because like I said, it's not just about the kids, it's about the families and the community uplift. We're trying to create something that's going to do good for multi-generations of the Bronx. And so our website, theinspiredcommunityproject.org, 
or our LinkedIn page, which is also the Inspired Community Project. Um, we're taking donations there. We're also looking for corporate advisory partners. Like I said, mm. this is very um, community-based. I don't ever want to reinvent the wheel. I want to gather the smartest people in all of the places and put them in one room. Yes. So anybody who works in any sort of industry adjacent to what we do, we want to partner with and we want to create synergies that we can make it easy for each other to carry out our goals. I have some names. I'm going Ooh, to probably it. be, I'll, I'll be contacting them as well. So, and on top of that, when we put this out there, we will make sure that there's a link there too. So we'll, if there's any link, just email it to me uh, and that we'll get in there. Okay. But thank, thank you so much, first of all, for your time, but especially for the work that you're doing. Um, I live, I love New York. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, and I know that this type of thing is exactly what is needed. And especially at this time. So thank you for all you do there, Jill. Thank you both so much for having me. This was really fun. I really, I enjoyed this a lot. Well, I, I want to throw in real quick. I've been to, to come clean. I've been a little um, distracted throughout this thing because I keep getting caught up in your in in the passion of Jill Moses. Yeah. And if there's if there's anything that I want that I, that I selfishly want is we need to. I want to have another interview with you. And I want to. You said something at the beginning. You said that you were built for this. And I want to know in a future episode what made you you. And so anyway, that, that's my request. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear your story. <laughs> Actually, I want to, this is what I want to do too. I, I, I know this, the, we, we, we psyched the audience out. We thought we were going to end, but we're, we're, I want to throw this one out there too. <laughs> I want to get you and Eileen on at the same time. I love that. And it would be hilarious. First of all, it, it would just be too much power in one room, man. Just the energy. Just, <laughs> yeah, be careful with stuff like, like that. Oh yeah. You got to be careful. But think about that. We'll see. We'll, we've already seen the character through the individual in, interviews. But when you see how it all ties in together, wow, wow that's power packed. So you I want to do that. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. Tell me when and where and I'll be there. You got it, Jill. Hey, thank you again for your time. Thank you both so much. This was lovely. <laughs> you bet.